Well, look around. Christmas time is upon us. This church certainly looks festive. And from the reports I received, the crowd yesterday had a good time putting things up. I hope, judging by the smile, that the report I received is accurate (laughs) and true. And I'm sure if I look at many of your homes, there's festivity abounding. Many of the downtown areas and cities across the U.S. look wonderful. Places I would never want to go normally look amazing at Christmas time. My own house, we bust out of the regular and we force the Christmas spirit upon us by putting up things that are brightly colored, things that point us to cherished family memories. It's a fun time. For many, Christmas is a happy time. In fact, I'd say we're expected to be merry and bright, aren't we? The, the visuals, the trees, the colors, the visuals of lights, of wreaths, of bows, the visuals, the scents. Yesterday, Kay made ginger snap cookies. Gingerbread-type things cooking in the oven make the house smell awesome. Pine scent, you know, balsam and cedar, I think, is the, is the Yankee candle that I have. It just, it smells like a, like a Christmas tree forest. I love it. The tastes of Christmas, all the sensory experiential overloadness that goes into the holidays contributes to us being happy. That is why in the Western world, the Christmas time is synonymous with cheer. But even as many of us feel like we're compelled to act like Buddy from the movie Elf, and if you haven't seen that fun movie, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a human child who grows up at the North Pole thinking he's an elf, and he comes back to New York City and you know, all those jaded New Yorkers, and he's just brimming with Christmas spirit. And he's almost annoyingly cheerful. And many of us feel compelled to be that way. But there are some of us who find that almost required cheerfulness to be forced to be a bit fake. After all, does plastering on a smile and singing cheerful songs for four weeks of the year really change anything in life? So for many people, it seems a bit, I don't know, fake, thin. And that the happiness conjured up at Christmas time is just that, something that we just conjure up. We live in a world where we, when faced with tough problems, want pat answers. Think about that. When a crisis happens, we want our officials, whoever's behind that microphone, to say something that soothes your ruffled feathers, that makes you feel okay. We don't even really care if it's true as long as it sounds good. Just make me feel better. Is Christmas just that? 
Is Christmas just a pat on the back, a pat on the head, a lollipop for your owie? Go about your day, son. No, I don't think so. I think the great news of Christmas is that the sum of the Bible teaches what we all know. That life sometimes stinks. And that God does not give us pat answers to real problems. Rather, the incarnation of Christ represents the spearheaded assault of God on the problems of the world. Your Christian faith, rightly understood, is not meant to be an opiate of the masses, something just to anesthetize the pain. Christianity is built on the premise that God confronts head-on the problems of the world. Christmas, then, is not simply a band-aid. Christmas is open-heart surgery. And so we should, in fact, have joy at Christmas time, I would posit. As the angels say, this will be news of great joy for all the people. The coming of the Son of Man into human history is a big deal. The title for this series is Tidings of Comfort and joy. I take that from the song, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now I think that hymn captures the news we need to hear at Christmas. The news of comfort and the news of joy. The news of comfort because it's probably not a surprise to you that people are hurting. I grew up in a home in which Christmas was celebrated well and it was actually until my adulthood that I learned that for some people, Christmas wasn't a happy time. Isn't that really naive? I was protected. <laughs> but the reality is that for many people, Christmas is a very painful time. Maybe some of you are celebrating without a loved one, or you're estranged from family, or, 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 or health. What, what? There's so many things that make the Christmas season an unpleasant time for so many. So many hurts, so many disappointments, so many frustrations. And our hearts are stirred, and they're restless. How many of you feel like your lives are just about to explode, and oh yeah, I got to keep it together because there's Christmas, and I got to smile, and I don't feel like smiling. I would suggest that probably many of you feel that way because life doesn't stop for the holidays but we need the news of comfort that God has not abandoned us in the midst of our trials 
Just because we haven't reached the fulfillment of all things does not mean that God is not with us now and that God has not acted for us and that God is not acting for us in the present. And we need the news of comfort. Sorry, the news of joy. Because the things we pursue in which we hope to find our meaning and our fulfillment and our happiness and our joy are always too low and they're fleeting and they don't last. And so we go through life feeling discontent and unsatisfied, looking, hoping for something to make us happy. This new pet project, this new hobby, this new career, this new car, this new whatever. It'll make me happy. No, this world and everything in it is passing away. So the news of Christmas is of great joy because as God confronts the problems of life, he points us to the one who can give what can never be taken away. Comfort and joy. We need it because our experience in life is all too often marred by pain, conflict, and sorrow, and hardship. I would suggest that for Christians, that's, that's really hard to swallow. We understand, we think that it's fair that wild rebel sinners should suffer and have a hard lot in life. What about us? I mean, doesn't Romans 8.32 tell us that, that God didn't spare his son for us? So then, won't he surely then give us all things? So then why does my life still stink? Why? If God is true, why does my life still have its hardships that seem to outnumber the ups? Is that not a question that many Christians ask? Too many Christians think that the smile plastered on their face that they have for these four weeks should be what characterizes them all year long. Every day should be Christmas Day. Maybe. But not in the way you've been conditioned to think. Because again, the Bible does not put a pat band-aid on the problems of life it confronts the reality of life. Now, because of what happened here in our passage today in, Roman, in Genesis 3, we learn in the book of Romans that all of creation was subjected to futility and to decay. And just a little hint, you and I were part of creation. So we were subjected to futility and to decay. That is the matrix in which we live, move, and have our being. A matrix of futility and decay. And Romans 5 teaches us that in Adam, with what happened here in Genesis 3, death entered the world and spread to everybody. Now, when it says that death entered the world, it does not just simply mean the biological fact of death. As if before Adam, people could have had a, a bloody riot, but just nobody died. No. 
when it talks about death entering the world, it also includes all of the conflict, chaos, disorder that has as its trajectory death. So everything wrong with the world goes back to what happened in the garden. Everything. Ever since Freud, it's been common to, when investigating someone's problems, to try to find out what happened in their formative years. Because they understand that your childhood is so important for who you are. It sets the tone for your whole life. So all the behavioral psychologists, all the primary principal shapers, the, the Skinner and Rogers and Erickson and all them, all their schools of thought have at their core that you've got to go back to your formative years, your childhood, and figure out what went wrong. The idea is that if you go back there and uncover what went wrong, you can recondition, re, re, sort of reset yourself so that way you can respond better in the present. That's called behavioral psychology. What they seem to never note is that there's no such thing as an ideal person. There's no person in the world that's had the ideal background, so they're in the present just acting perfectly. Why is it that every single person absorbs trauma, absorbs bad habits? We just absorb badness. We're like a sponge in water. We just suck it up. It's because having gone bad in Adam, we are now prone to and desirous of wickedness. Now, God could have just left us there, but he didn't. He did not abandon us. And what I want to look at in this passage briefly is how God, even from the very beginning, did not just leave the world on a trajectory of abandonment. From the moment of Adam's sin, God is there enacting his plan of redemption. If you look back at Genesis 3, I'm not going to exposit how, how Adam and Eve should have responded to the serpent, but we see two basic self-oriented dispositions that now govern our life in a fallen world. First, we see the self-oriented disposition of self-promotion. We see that it says in verse uh, 6, the woman sees that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eye, and it was to be desired to make one wise. Okay. So they have received the clear command of God. They had walked in untarnished, unbroken fellowship with the Lord. We get the idea that when the Lord shows up in the cool of the day, that that was kind of a, a habitual act, as if there was like this daily rendezvous with the Lord just to hang out in fellowship. I mean, how cool is that? But at the temptation of the evil one, they set their free will to work, 
and they started thinking about it. And they decided that what the serpent was saying was true, that God was holding out on them, and they wanted something more. And so the disposition of self-promotion kicks in. And I would say that it has kicked in, and it's raring to this day. We want ourselves to be the center of attention. We want our will to be done on earth. That's what we want. That is why we fight. James locates the conflicts in the church with everyone wanting their way to be done. Self-promotion. And then, as soon as God shows up, we see the second self-oriented disposition kick in, and that is self-defense. You may think self-justification, because that's what happens here, but self-justification is a form of self-defense. They immediately start trying to justify themselves. They have to save face. They have to protect their ego. They have to protect their personhood, their position, their newfound equality with God. And so what's the first thing Adam does? He blames the woman. The woman that you gave me, God. So who's he blaming ultimately? God. Doesn't accept any responsibility. So having thrown his wife under the bus, what does she say? It was the serpent. Just this passing of the buck. And God doesn't even question the serpent because he didn't need to. He didn't need to from the beginning. He shows up wondering where they are for a dramatic effect to underscore that there's a broken relationship now. To show that he's not the one who's changed. He's not the one who's suddenly distancing himself from them. It's they who have done something to alienate themselves from him. They have turned their back on him. So when God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Immediately we see the consequences of that. That now the unbroken presence and life and fellowship they had, first with each other and God, is broken. You see it when they make themselves, they sew themselves fig leaves together for loincloths, Okay. The purpose of the loincloth, it was not garments for protection from the elements. It's simply to cover your private parts for the purpose of shame. They're the only two people there. But yet immediately, there's a sense of violation of privacy. And I need my privacy to maintain my dignity. And so they cover themselves from the prying eyes of the other, who just a few moments before was their perfectly wedded spouse. And then they try to hide from the Lord. I mean, what a foolish idea, right? How are you going to do that? Well, sin makes us stupid. And you may think, why didn't he just run? Why didn't they just run and fall on the ground and say, God, I'm sorry? Because sin didn't let them do that. Because of their sin, they didn't want to do that. 
Sin made them want to promote and defend themselves. And that's what we do all day, every day. I promote myself, and I defend myself. You promote yourself, and you defend yourself. We do this still like they did with God. We blame God. How many times has something bad happened, and we throw it at God? God's the one who let this happen. You could have stopped it, God, but you didn't. So you're to blame. Not me and my stupid decision. Not so-and-so and their decision. It's you, God. We must, above all else, absolve ourselves of responsibility. That's the way we feel. But we see God give out his judgment. Because they did this, everything has changed. He first speaks to the serpent. You're cursed. And you're going to eat dust all your days. And, and that doesn't mean that he literally biologically consumes dust. It means he crawls in the dirt and dust is kicked in his face. It's a sign of his abjection and shame. To the woman, you're going to have great pain in childbearing. And you're going to be desirous of your husband. But he's going to rule over you. And that word desire shall be for is used in the very next chapter to refer to mastery. So he's saying there's going to be conflict. You're going to want to be in charge, but your husband's going to be in charge, and there's going to just be fighting. And to the man, you are going to work, and by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eke out some meager existence until your energy is finally spent and you return to the dust. And then, of course, as we learn, death has spread to everyone. Was that fair? Was it fair of God to do all that? I mean, they just ate a piece of fruit. Talk about going overboard, right? I don't think so. Think about it here. Th think about it in real clear terms. You have the God of the universe. And you have this creature of dust who the God of the universe created and granted dignity to, raised him up, set him in charge of something, gave him everything in the world except one thing. And said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So he gave clear parameters and clear warning. And despite that, Despite all the gifts, despite all the endowments, despite all the blessing, despite all the warning, this creature still rebels. But then, after rebelling, the Lord doesn't just come down and say, I told you so, and wield out some massive battle axe and chop him in half. He doesn't just slay him on the spot. Instead, the Lord seeks him out and seeks the woman out. Now, I think that is what is not fair. That there's any hope at all. Now, in the midst of this, we see God's good purposes in action. Because in spite of what he had said 
about them dying in the day. He allows them to live. And the news may seem harsh, but he's making promises. What does he tell the woman? In pain you will bring forth children. What's the promise there? You're still going to have kids. I'm not just killing you. Your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to master you. Oh, man, that doesn't sound very wonderful. But she still has a husband to provide for her and to protect her from the world. The marriage covenant, the marriage relationship as the foundational unit of society is still intact. To the man, in pain you shall eat of the ground by the sweat of your brow until you return to dust. But you know what? The promise is you're going to eat. You're going to eat. And so understanding that there's a promise here, that life is not being immediately terminated. Instead, God is graciously setting a way ahead. The man names his wife Eve. Why? Because in faith he knew that she would become the mother of all the living. They understood that in the midst of their rebellion, God had made a promise. And that promise is seen crystal clearly to the serpent. Where in his direct judgment against the serpent, he tells the serpent that there will be enmity between the woman and he and her seed and his seed. And he, there's a singular he now, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So what we see from the beginning is God coming in into the midst of this destruction that was just unfolded. And God knew that what had just transpired here, the ramifications rolled out over time, was going to be death spreading to everyone. That in the midst of it, God was putting the seeds of life and hope. And so, God, in his provision, offers the first sacrifice. Genesis 3.21, where do you think those skins came from? The first animals that were ever killed were killed by God. And he makes clothing for them, it says. Not just something to hide their shame. He actually makes them something that will protect them from the elements now. Because now that creation has been subjected to futility, the elements will try to kill them. Which is why it's always too hot. Or it's always too cold. And the only perfect weather place is in San Diego, but no one wants to live there. (laughs) Okay? God actually set in motion things to protect us. And so every minute of human history from this moment here in Genesis 3.15 to the cross was God orchestrating human affairs to set in motion and put in place all the players and all the set pieces needed for the coming of Christ. And then in one moment... The Son of God came. And that was God spearheading the direct assault on everything that's wrong in life. And every minute that's been spent since the cross, you know what that's been? That's been God working out that plan of salvation. Applying the work that Jesus did on that cross to us. 
to every tribe, nation, and tongue under heaven. Now we can have confidence that God keeps his word because he kept his word to come in the first place. Every single Advent season should be pointed towards our anticipation of the second coming of Christ. We celebrate the first coming of Christ because of what happened and because of what it points to. It's impossible to rejoice in what Jesus did without expecting and anticipating what he's going to do when he comes back. He's going to finish what was started. He crushed the head of the serpent at the cross. But that serpent, like many snakes I know, is still flinging itself around. A rattlesnake, if you cut off its head, it can still bite you for hours. Did you know that? It's gruesome, isn't it? It's kind of like life. But the day is coming when he will return and he will take that serpent and cast it into the fiery abyss. And it will be no more. We live in the in-between time. And God has met head-on the problems we face. No pat answers. Just the real promise and provision of God to be with us in the midst of the struggles of the here and now. And this matrix that we're in is the chessboard that we're on. And God is with us and will never abandon us. He's proven that by sending his son. So as your heart is hurting, as your heart is heavy, as your mind is swirling with everything going on, just remember, Jesus has come. And he has brought salvation from afar. And he has made it close. And the Spirit has applied it. That's awesome. Let's pray.